Hello and welcome to Tour of Truth with Krista and Company. Tonight we are recording on location in Israel at the Dead Sea. We're with Pastor Tim Moore and his wife Debbie from Cornerstone Church in Western Massachusetts. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Krista. It's a pleasure to be here. Also joining us tonight, Teresa Gardner, Tina Grant, and Blessing Wachiku. Pastor Tim and Debbie journeyed with us throughout the land of Israel, and we visited some incredible, biblically historical sites. One of them was a place called Shiloh, and Shiloh is actually the place where the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, resided for 360 years. It was there before the first temple was built by King Solomon. This is literally the place where the glory of God, the presence of God, dwelt. And we were setting our feet right there in that same land. And then we visited the pools of Bethesda, which is the place where Jesus healed the man that had been paralyzed for 38 years. And then there was a place called Bet-Shean. Bet-Shean was a city that has been uncovered through excavations, and it's the remains of a Canaanite city, which later became a Roman Byzantine city. In 1 Samuel 28, Saul enlisted a medium at Endor who calls up Samuel the prophet who had passed away. So Samuel prophesies at that point, he prophesies Saul death, which happens. And we find that in 1 Samuel 31. But when Saul died, the people of this town hung him up on the walls in bet Pastor Tim delivered a profound message while we sat in the amphitheater of bet It was a message about King Manasseh. And I knew this story, I thought, until he got to a certain point, And I thought I must have glossed right over the most important point. Pastor Tim, would you mind sharing this teaching again with our listeners? My pleasure. Bet-Shean, scripturally, is best known because it was the place that the bodies of King Saul and his three sons were tied to after the Israeli army fell to the Philistines. But as a backdrop to that, we looked at the life of King Manasseh. It would be helpful if we could read that passage from scripture in Second Chronicles 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry host and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry host. He sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the image he had made and put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of Israelites leave the land I assigned to your ancestors, if only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them concerning all the laws, decrees, and regulations given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray, so they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, 
clothes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. So interestingly, Manasseh was the one who reigned the longest of all the kings in Israel, 55 years. Because he started at 12, right? He started at 12. <laughs> was co-regent for a while and then in total reigned 55 years. But he was also the worst of the kings of Judah. Not only did he kill his sons, not only did he go astray from the Lord and set up images, both male and female, in terms of the idols, but he led the whole of Judah and Jerusalem astray. God had said in the book of Deuteronomy that the reason the nations were dispossessed was not because of Israel's righteousness, but because of the iniquity that was in the nations. So the promised land was in fulfillment of covenant as long as they obeyed the commands of the Lord. Manasseh not only disobeyed, but he led the whole nation astray into idolatry. But after judgment came, and this is one of the most redemptive things of God, when God's discipline comes, it's always with a redemptive purpose. So Manasseh is taken by the king of Babylon, dragged away, but in that kingdom, he repents. And it says he was earnest in his entreaty and God forgave him. And not only did he forgive him, it said he brought him to his kingdom again, meaning that Manasseh was still then reestablished as king. Yes. God redeemed and restored him because he was fully repentant to the Lord. After that, we see the fruits of his repentance and that he followed the Lord's commands. Jesus said, if you love me, you obey me. Sometimes we revert to the law in our understanding, meaning if you love me, then you'll do all the right things or obey the rules. Whereas I think what Jesus was saying is that if you truly love me because of that love, you will be obedient to the things. Because that you'll I be transformed. Command. Exactly. In a marital relationship, Deb and I, I don't remain faithful to her because I have to. Mm -hmm. I remain faithful to her because I love her. Mm -hmm. And so I walk in righteousness because of that love. It doesn't prove it just by action. If I'm only faithful when she's here, then am I really faithful? Right. right. So if you're in love with the Lord, you desire to obey him just like Jesus did of the Father. Right. Well, and that's where that personal relationship makes a difference, right? We're not transformed by just knowing the facts that we read in the Bible. We're transformed by the relationship. And back to the closing points of the story of Manasseh, he was redeemed. As a matter of fact, his grandson, who would become king, Josiah, was a reformer king that led the nation back to the Lord. I think one of the most beneficial things here it for us is to understand that we can never go beyond God's love or his forgiveness. It's not licensed to do wrong. Again, if I'm in relationship with the Lord and I'm transformed, freedom is not doing my will. Freedom is about doing the Lord's will. No one can go beyond God's love or forgiveness. And I think the enemy of our soul and sometimes those around us try to convince us mm -hmm. that I can't be forgiven. Mm -hmm. and, and that is just a sad message. Jesus didn't die for the Christians. Jesus died for the world. And because he died for the world, then I was able to be in Christ by virtue of the Holy Spirit and the new birth, that relationship. But it's not my righteousness, just like it was not Israel's righteousness that allowed them to enter the land of promise. And that's what we have here. And in the context of what we were teaching at Bet Shean, if Saul had turned, even though God had rejected him because he was turning the nation astray, if his entreaty was earnest, right. it would have been a different story. And I think in the New Testament, it correlates with Judas and Peter. So if Judas had turned to the Lord, even after his betrayal, mm -hmm. I mean, Manasseh betrayed the Lord. 
he led people astray from the Lord. He led them into idolatry and yet repented and God received him. Judas betrayed the Lord. And, and even in his kiss in the garden, Jesus says, friend, do you betray me with a kiss? And not in condemnation, but still even in that moment, holding the door open for right. restoration in Judas's life. Peter, of course, also denied the Lord, mm -hmm. but he was struck he in heart and repented. It, and that's the difference in our lives. We'll all screw up. Yeah. What do I do after I screw up? Do I turn to God? Pastor Tim, sitting on the southern steps to the Temple Mount, you were teaching us about the fact that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, that he's going to build his church, his way, when we submit to him, he's going to work in and through us at that point. So often we go about thinking we're going to do ministry for the Lord. And what you were explaining that afternoon was it's all up to God, that he's the one at work. And the word tells us, my father is always at work. Jesus said, and I do what I see my father doing. Would you mind sharing some of the highlights from that message as well? Sure. One of the beautiful things about being on site was we got to see what had been excavated, what was still there in terms of the temple, but nothing of Solomon's temple remained. So everything that was either restored or was from a latter period in time. Naturally speaking, anything that man builds will not last. We looked at David's desire to build a house for God. He says in 2 Samuel 7 that because God had caused him to be successful, had taken him from the sheepfold and made him king, that he was living in a house of cedar, that he wanted to build a place for God. And initially, Nathan, who was the prophet, who was his counselor, said, go ahead, because he knew David really lived to please the Lord. But the Lord spoke to Nathan in the night and said, thank it's you very much, you. but <laughs> it's not you. The beauty of the Lord is expressed so well again there, because the Lord says to David, I will build your house, and that will be an eternal house. He would build a natural temple, of course, through his son Solomon, but he promised to build a dynasty for David. And we all know that Jesus came from the line in the lineage of David. There's a couple of helpful passages in scripture in Isaiah chapter 66, the first couple of verses in Psalm 127, verse 1. This is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit. And if you could read Psalm 127, verse 1 as well. Unless Adonai builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless Adonai watches over the city, the watchman stands guard in vain. Thank you. So we learned that unless the Lord is the one who is building, we labor in vain. Unless the Lord is the one who is guarding or watching. And his word to Solomon or to all of us is, if heaven is God's throne and earth is his footstool, who of us presumes to think that we could build anything for the Lord? That sometimes carries over, sadly, into the church. We forget that Jesus is the head of the church and that even in the book of Acts it said that God added to the church daily those who were being saved after Peter's message in Acts chapter 2. Sometimes I think we take it upon ourselves to try to build the kingdom of God or we even presume to do ministry for Jesus but it is Jesus who is the head. Jesus continues his own ministry but he continues his ministry through the church. If he doesn't build it then we're building in vain. If I am building then it's usually for my own aggrandizement. It doesn't glorify God. Right. In America, I think sometimes we fall into the trap. If it's bigger and better, more glamorous, or we see it as reaching more people, is it what the Lord has said? It's interesting that Samuel, who was the prophet that anointed David, was also told by the Lord to anoint initially Saul. Samuel was a judge in Israel. The people of Israel came to Samuel as his days were ending and said that they wanted a king. The reason they wanted the king is so that they could be like everybody else. It said so that we can be like all the other nations 
well, God had said that he had separated them from all the other nations, that they were his own prized possessions, his own separate people. So keeping I, up with the Joneses, it started way back when. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And sometimes we carry that over into the church. We want to be like the world. We want to be like everybody else. And it's not wrong to use methodology, but methodology is not what gets people saved. It's the Spirit of God that draws people in the kingdom. And our commission is to make disciples. Right. I know I've been in this place of doing things that may have been good things, things that I believe could help bring people. But again, it's about me. And I didn't really seek the Lord. Again, going back to that relationship with the Lord, if we're in that relationship and we're seeking Him and His guidance on a daily basis, we're looking to see where He is at work and what He's telling us to get involved in. When we were at the Pool of Bethesda that you'd mentioned earlier, it says in John chapter 5 that at Bethesda, at this pool, there were five covered porches in which a whole bunch of sick people were laid. An angel would come down periodically and trouble the waters and the first one, the one person after the troubling of the waters was healed. But it says that when Jesus came to the pool of Bethesda, he went to one man who was paralyzed for 38 years and asked him if he would be made whole. As I read a little further in John chapter 5, the 19th verse, Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. Right. And so I'm thinking, well, Jesus isn't being very spiritual. He should have just healed everybody. But even the ministry that Jesus did was only directed by his Father. He was so submitted to the will of God. He didn't presume. So it's not just the number of people that I go to if God hasn't called that. It's not his heart that any should perish, but we need to be faithful to right. his calling in our lives. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with a large church if God has called someone right. to that. If you're being faithful to the ministry that God has called you, but it's when I try to adapt to a system rather than following the Spirit right. of God. And I am not the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. Right. We talk about different gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 or in Romans chapter 12 or Ephesians chapter 4, but we each have a gift for a purpose as part of a whole. Jesus is the head of the body. There's only one one body. It's not a competition. I'm not supposed to be trying to be something that God hasn't ordained. I have a question for Pastor Tim. Like uh, you said that the love of God is profound, that he loves us and can always bring us back. Is it not important for us to continue to abide unto the vine like we were instructed in John chapter 15? Like the Bible says, walk out your salvation. It's all about discipline and sacrifice before God brings us back. What can you say about that? Well, I think uh, God would say to us, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. God will deal with us in the most merciful way possible, but his, Abba, his Father heart for us is that we have life. And so if suffering or discipline is necessary, then he will apply the discipline not for discipline's sake, but in order for relationship to be established. When Jesus talks about the vine and the branches, he says that we must abide in him and he in us. But we remember from that symbolism that the life flows from what? The vine. The vine. And who does the pruning? father does the pruning. I can't decide what's best for my life. One of the other verses we shared was from Ephesians 2 verse 10 that says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus 
to do the good works that God has already foreordained that we should do. And so the abiding is not dependent on the branch, it's dependent on the vine. I don't want to separate from the vine because then I lose life, I will be gathered and burned. But if I will remain in him and he remains in me, the natural outflow of life to bear fruit. And Jesus said, in this is my Father glorified that you bear fruit, that you bear much fruit. If I impose self-disciplines, I'm actually feeding my natural nature. Paul addresses this in Colossians chapter 2, that we could worship angels, we could talk about visions and revelations, we could self-impose things that will never really restrain the flesh. I have to come under the discipline of God and his Holy Spirit, and it's much more severe than the natural. Like he says in Galatians chapter 5, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And I try to do it the other way. I try to deal with all the lusts of the flesh, try to guard everything. And he said, that is not the way to life. You're putting the cart before the horse. If you will follow my spirit, then you will walk in life and be fruitful. What would be your response to somebody who says, well, then how do we know if we're abiding in him? How do we know if we're remaining? I've tried to convey the answers that I find in scripture, but I'd love to hear what it is you'd have to say to somebody who asks that. In Romans 8, it says that the spirit of God will bear witness with our spirit that we are in relationship with God. In John chapter 15 that we're talking about here, when I am in relationship with him, the natural outflow of that relationship will be the bearing of fruit. So we see, for instance, in the story of Martha and Mary in Luke's gospel, that although Martha was very busy for the Lord, I mean, come on, give Martha a break. She she was serving (laughs) Jesus. She was serving the disciples. She was trying to be a gracious hostess, but it says she was distracted in her serving. She forgot why she was serving. And Jesus said, Mary has chosen the better portion and it will not be taken from her. So the spirit will convince my spirit that I'm in relationship. When I'm in relationship, my life will bear fruit. And we have explained for us back to Galatians 5, what the fruit of the spirit is. And so if I don't see the fruit of the spirit in my life, then I should ask the Lord what is impeding our relationship. I have another question for you because I feel like this is just a great opportunity to question a pastor. (laughs) What would you say about tithing? Are our tithes supposed to go to our home church? You know, the, the ministry needs that are all over the world that you connect with as you journey through life. Are those places that you should distribute your tithes if you want, or is that supposed to be a gift? Let me back up a step before I answered directly. Look at why the tithe was instituted in the Old Covenant. We talk about the tithe in terms of the law, but I think we know from Scripture that the tithe preceded the law. The, the first tithe that is talked about is in the book of Genesis, the 14th chapter, when Abraham meets Melchizedek, the priest, after he had rescued Lot coming back from the defeat of the kings and restoring Lot and his family and all the property, etc. of the kings, it said that Abraham chose to tithe of all that was given to him to the priest. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole other thing we could talk about Melchizedek and even his offering of bread and wine in a culture that offered blood sacrifice as a mean of covenant, and that has to do with the New Testament. But when I look at Abraham being called as the father of faith as well as the father of a nation, I see a heart response. We can trace it back even further to the fourth chapter in the book of Genesis when Cain and Abel bring a sacrifice to the Lord. It says that Cain brought of the fruits of his field where Abel brought the first. Mm-hmm. We don't have time to go through the whole history, but the I short... I really could keep here a while because that's yes. another question I've had when I've read that. I'm like, well, why did God not like his sacrifice? If someone would look up Genesis 4, we'll get the exact wording, but the short story is Cain brought some, meaning it could have been even the leftover fruit or 
fruit that wasn't good. Well, I have to bring an offering, so he brought an offering. Abel brings the firstling. He brings the first, it mentions the fatted lamb. So Abel Mm -hmm. brought the first and the best. Cain brought the leftovers. The scripture says that God had respect for Abel and his offering, but did not have respect for Cain and his offering. And he says to Cain, when Cain is angry, he said, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. Cain's heart was in a place that he was turning from relationship with God and God was still trying to restore him and he just leaves God's presence and goes and kills his brother. That scripture is very powerful even today. Sin is crouching at the door and it desires to have you. It's a truth and it started in the beginning. Bringing this back to tithing, the human heart wants what it wants. The first sin is an expression of greed. Pride is the motivation but greed is what's in evidence here. Adam and Eve were given responsibility for everything. They were given an idyllic environment. They were given lordship over the earth. They were created in God's image and likeness. They were to guard. They were to keep. And the only prohibition, of course, was partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God didn't want their natures distorted. But it can't be love if it's not a choice. And so God offers a choice. And yet they choose the one thing that they were told not to and introduce evil into the system. So when I realize that the human heart tends to, like a baby, if you have children, one of the first words that children learn are no or mm-hmm. mine. We come with clenched fist. It is hard for us to give. God is a giving God. God so loved the world that he gave. That is his nature. And if we looked at creation and we looked at his dealing with man, God wants me to have a generous heart. What kind of giver does it tell us in Second Corinthians 9? God loves giver. Yeah, right. hilarion is the word that's used in Greek that we get the word hilarious from. Mm-hmm. God loves a generous giving heart. Abraham, who was a friend of God, had a generous heart. And I could look through the scriptures in David's heart. David supplied a lot of the things for the temple. And so God uses his friend's example as a benchmark or a watermark for the people of Israel to make sure that they kept giving because when I don't give, I become like the Dead Sea. There's no outlet. So the purpose of giving is not just to obey a rule. The purpose of giving is to allow for a flow through my heart so that it will be like his heart. So we get to the tithe. Well, in the Old Covenant, it was actually tithes and offerings. But the tithe, the Lord says, belongs to me. So bring the tithe into my storehouse. So the intention was so that my house might be full. God's intention in the tithe was, of course, the support of the priesthood and the Levitical order to sustain them so that the worship of God could continue. There are a series of offerings, but the fellowship offering and the free will offering is what people gave. And so we see the response even in the fashioning of the temple, the tabernacle, they had to restrain the people Mm -hmm. from giving. So now we get into the new covenant. Hebrews tells us in the eighth chapter that we have a better covenant established by better promises. So do I have to tithe, first of all? (laughs) You don't have to do anything. In the New Testament, it all belongs to the Lord. The short answer to your question directly The tithe in the storehouse belongs to where you worship, where you're being fed. Offerings, they can be given in that house, they can be given to those in need, but people should be faithful. We don't get to decide that portion. Robert Morris from Gateway in Texas said that you haven't even started to give (laughs) when you give the tithe. And that's a very real principle. If we had time to look in Hebrews, actually the tithe's being brought to Jesus. Yes, of the verse that says to tithe, and then it goes on to bring everything into the storehouse, and he'll pour out a blessing that you can't, can't even measure, that you I'll can't even contain. That's right. Open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that you can't even contain. But then, after that, it says, and I will rebuke the devourer. Amen. When I saw that, my heart leapt. 
for me, it's been a huge motivation, to be honest with you. Also, it's the only place where God says, test me in this. Absolutely. You know? Mm -hmm. And I love that because God is faithful to his word. Mm -hmm. He is. From my experience, I know at least years ago, our pastor had said that, you know, this is where the Lord said, test me. And so just try, even if it's just 10 more dollars or 20 more dollars a week. And I just took that and was like, okay, I'll I'll try that. And it was amazing the transformation that what was a small increase, what that did just leaps and bounds for my faith and realizing that he does, he does exactly what he says in the scripture. I never even noticed anything different in my bank account. Mm -hmm. And it only inspired me to do more. For me, it was very much a faith builder. Back to Malachi, the prophet Malachi chapter three, when the Lord says, test me in this, and he says, to see if I will not open the windows of heaven. He also says that before that, that we rob him, the whole nation is cursed with a curse for robbing God. In the United States, a study done within the last 20 years or so said that the average giving for believers was less than 2%. It's interesting to me that our national debt has only continued to increase. And in a very real sense, we are under a curse. It's not the unbeliever's responsibility. Like we quote from Second Chronicles 7 all the time, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven. And we have a responsibility as believers, and we can actually be the source of blessing, the light to this nation. It's about a heart that's like his heart, a generous heart. And we all know that just from everyday life. Think about how you feel in the presence of a stingy person and think of how you feel in the presence of a giving person. Right. It's toxic. Or even a negative person. Mm-hmm. They just suck the life right out of you. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's the opposite. When you're with yep. that cheerful giver or that person who just has life to yes. give, everybody That's wants uplifting. to be around them. Mm-hmm. Yes, Pastor Tim. Uh, when we started, there was a statement that you made. Um, when we backslide, I don't know who said that. When somebody backslide, referring to Menesa. But First John spoke about if we backslide, it meant that we didn't love God the first time. It's talking about the practice of sin. One of the things we need to realize is that when we come to Jesus, we don't lose our free will. Not to cause contention in the body of Christ, but the realization that we don't lose our free will when we come to Jesus. I have proven that in my own life because I've sinned after I came to Jesus. I have made choices against the Lord. He has not rejected me when I confess my sins. He is faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness, which John mentions at the end of the first chapter, 1 John. But then in the third chapter, he says that if we continue to walk in sin, the challenge is though we are eternally secure in Jesus, the doctrine of eternal security says that we can just do anything we choose which is not represented. My life hasn't changed. Again, I go back to the bearing of fruit. So there's no fear about us being taken from him, but there's no prohibition of us choosing to leave. That particular scripture that says nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, it describes tangible things. It describes forces, external things, but it never says me. It never talks about, I can't walk away. It just says, nothing can take me. Right. And the other references in John chapter 10, no one can take us out of the Father's hand. No one can take us out of Jesus's hand. But it doesn't say that we can't choose to leave his hand. Which coincides with what Jesus said, that we must remain in him. It's a choice. Because he says at the end of that, that the branch that doesn't remain in me is broken off and thrown into the fire. Right. So I don't know what you do with those verses, with (laughs) the whole eternal security doctrine. Not to mention that eternal security isn't stated anywhere in the Bible, but 
even the Apostle Paul, I mean, it used, <laughs> used to bother me when I would read at the end of Paul's life, he says, I've run the race, I've kept the faith. But faith. pray for me. Therefore, there's laid up a crown. I, I thought, was there ever a question? He was saying we have to work out our salvation with fear and trouble, and it's not salvation based on works, but we need to be responsive to the Lord's discipline. Right. He is the head of the church, and just as my brain dictates what happens in my body, so Jesus is the one who leads the church, but we would rather go our own way, sadly. I think a great follow-up verse to close with would be John 14, verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Amen. 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 Well, Pastor Tim and Debbie, we appreciate so much just having this time with you tonight and your scholarly mind. It's been a blessing. I wonder if you would close us in prayer. Father, thank you that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to Jesus. I pray that the veil would be removed from our eyes, that our hearts would be soft and responsive. We would not involve ourselves in debate, but would rather, as Jesus, submit ourselves to the Father's will and in following you, be a blessing to your heart and a blessing to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you'd like to hear this podcast again or if you'd like to hear another one, you can find us at touroftruth.com. We'll look forward to chatting with you again soon.